This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Hello, and welcome back to Ask the Expert with the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Steph Storer, and joining me today is the wonderfully creative and lovely author and historian, Jan Marie Knight. Thank you for joining us, Jan. Thank you for asking me. Well, today's topic is a really fascinating one because it always creates so much interest And that topic, of course, is the Tudor socialite. Hearing about the daily lives of those at court, or even the wealthy, the nobility not at court, is quite captivating to think about, as it's just so drastically different than what we're used to. When I hear the word socialite, unfortunately, it's hard to take it out of like a modern context and not picture you know, a Kardashian or a a Hadid or something. And that's not that's not what we mean here. So Jan, why don't you give us your definition of what a socialite was back then in the Tudor era? Well, I imagined the socialite uh, for the book was a woman courtier, not necessarily important personage, but someone close enough to have the right connections and friends to hear all the gossip, be involved in or hear about events, kind of knowing the right people and above all, keeping your eyes and ears open, you know, really you could kind of say all the above stairs sort of people. Uh, And also I have to say, you know, I I read the letters and journals by the people of the time and it made everything so immediate to such an extent that one of the letter writers died in mid-correspondence. I had to stop reading because I felt so sad. I I almost had to go away and mourn him. Um, And looking at the contemporary journals like Hawes Chronicle, Help me imagine what I was seeing and feeling and hearing or even overhearing, actually, uh, smelling to convey a whole sense of being there and trying to write down those impressions so that people reading the book would feel the same way. I love that. Thank you. It's such a <laughs> such a great connection that you have then with with your subject. I, well, I try. So how would you? Yeah, yeah, of course. And that's how we know you're a great writer, right? <laughs> Oh, hey, it's Rebecca here. I'm sorry to interrupt the show. I just want to quick do a shout out to all of my patrons. And if you love the show, you want to hear more of it, want to show your support, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash tutors dynasty. Click become a patron to find out more info. We had some cool stuff coming up. So let's get back to the show. So how, how would one become a socialite at the time? Were they Were they all people at court? Or could you work your way up? Or how did you how did you become a socialite? Well, being um, noble or, or upper gentry, you had access to the court, either because you were a royal servant or you were a servant or a royal servant. Um, and if you were right in the midst, you could gain access to much of what was happening. And, and another surprise, actually, from reading the letters, although this doesn't quite apply, was how much generally people knew about what was going on. Not the secret machinations and the secret policies, but the day-to-day activities as people wrote home to their families. I mean, think of the Paston letters, for instance, and others. You can you can find these online. Anybody can to read them. So generally, people even outside the court were quite well informed. So you didn't have to be at court to write diary entries. But however, generally, a socialite means someone who wishes to be within the fashionable set, which is, of course, in Tudor times, the court and the government. 
and it covers both men or women. And some of those gossips were as much men as women. The um, letters by ambassadors convey an awful lot of gossip from one court to the other courts. And also they, they wrote letters to their personal friends. So you get the personal touches as well. And it, an example would be the legate Campeggio, uh, who had come to hear the case between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. He actually writes to a friend with a big moan about the English summer weather. And he's telling this person in Rome he's shivering in front of a fire in June. Well, I can say not much changes. It's first of June today and the weather's much the same. And I mean, or my favourite, a Mr Underhill. He's asked to be a server at Queen Mary Tudor's wedding to Prince Philip of Spain, who obviously becomes Philip II. And he sends a venison pasty to his wife for her and their friends to enjoy. So all these little touches that, you know, got to read and um, and, and ponder on. So as far as these nobles or the gentry that were, are at court, there are certain, I guess, bits of etiquette that that one must follow when you are in these social circles. If you had worked your way up and you weren't necessarily born into the circles and therefore taught things from birth, who would teach you how to behave in these social circles if you didn't already know? Were there, I mean, saying, you know, an etiquette teacher sounds silly, but well, who would teach all, you? Almost, almost you're, you're right with that. Um, when it came to the nobles and um, perhaps the higher gentry, they were taught at home or they were sent out to other houses where they would meet with um, people of their own age and they would be taught manners, how to eat and drink. They would learn to dance and ride and hunt. They would be given lessons in music as well as foreign languages. And add to that, um, women would learn cooking and herb craft for making medicines um, both would learn how to manage estates and understand accounts. So there would be such an opportunity to learn from being um, emulating your elders, mixing with your peers, so there'd be a certain amount of perhaps competition, and tutors were brought in. Uh, so everything that was considered necessary for you to play your part in society, um, would they'd be engaged for them. And sometimes even a personal appearance would play a part. I mean, Henry VII only wanted ladies who were pretty to wait on Catherine of Aragon when she came to England to marry Prince Arthur. And then further down the scale, there were schools of different types that were set up by various people, which included monarchs and priests. Those clever enough would go on to university, either here or abroad. Um, people interested in the law would go to Paris, those in the church perhaps to Italy. Um, but everyone at the time were conscious of rank and birth, but that doesn't mean those of low birth couldn't move up the social scale. And the classic example, of course, is Cardinal Wolsey, who begins, as they say, a butcher's son. He impresses Henry VII with his quick thinking and service, and then his son, Henry VIII, and moved up to be pretty much the second highest person in the land. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That's actually exactly who I was thinking of when I was asking that question. <laughs> I think it's the one we all think of, and Cromwell, of course, is next. Right, um, right. So it was possible, but they had worked pretty hard to get there. Yes. So once you are in the court or you, you have made it to, to these circles, what was kind of a day in the life 
of a Tudor socialite. I know uh, you had mentioned the the hunting or um, riding, dancing, oh. things like that. But how how did a typical day go? And actually, if you are able to and want to tell us maybe a man and a woman, that would be a great way to, to give us kind of an all-encompassing view of, of their day. Much of what we know we glean from the account books, which show how people within the households were paid, what food they were given, what lodgings they were given. And that was the same whether you were upper or lower orders, and it was set by lords of the household. So all the houses, including royal ones, operated under what would be called a set of ordinances. Now, in Henry VIII's time, there was a book found of detailed rules called the Eltham Ordinances. Um, this was supposed to keep good order in his household, uh, keep waste to a minimum, and it was signed off by the king um, so they could consult it regularly. And <clears throat> if I can explain the sort of general um, outline first, basically there'd be a main building or great hall or outer chamber used for public life and usually where upper servants would sleep. There would be a presence chamber for conducting private business and there would be a private chamber, chamber or privy chamber for the more intimate parts of life with close friends and relatives. And the king and queen have separate apartments and offices. A comptroller they would each have for accounting and checking provisions and supplies. So the steward looked after the hall and servants and he oversaw all the departments to ensure an efficient household and a chamberlain in the other areas. Uh, and anything pertaining to the monarch's comfort and his bedroom. And the Queen, of course, had her own. So everyone has a position with clearly delineated duties to be formed, which attached to that position um, where this was the way everything was made to run smoothly. This meant whatever estate or degree you were, it would dictate where you were lodged or not, how much provisions you would obtain in coal and candles, food, how much bread, meat you would receive, and even which privy toilet you were allowed to use, plus the hours you were engaged for and how much time you were allowed off. And if you broke the rules, you were fired. And the autumn ordinances show that gentlemen of Henry VIII's privy chamber were expected to work six weeks on and six weeks off, although this could vary. And then, of course, the court moved around pretty regularly. So smooth functioning was an essential. This meant palaces could be aired, provisions uh, would not be completely used up in one area. And of course, it gave the monarchs a chance to be seen by the people and where necessary dispense justice. Back to the positions, to give an instance, a groom with a wardrobe would hang tapestries in the chambers, set up the bed hangings with mattresses, coverings, bolsters, pillows, put down the carpets. All these things kept in a great store cupboard called a wardrobe. And of course, the robes and jewels were kept safe in the wardrobe of the robes. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of people involved. Anything between 200 in a normal household to 1,000 in the royal household. But once duties were over, then it was time to go and enjoy yourself. Then it was tennis and shooting at the Bart's bowls, indoors and out. That would be mainly for the men while the ladies watch. For the ladies, it would be conversation, needlework and embroidery. For both, there would be playing cards or board games such as fox and geese. They'd play musical instruments and compose songs and poetry. Some would um, write letters. Uh, there were three groups of women in the Queen's household. There were ladies of the privy chamber, married and of high rank. They attended to her washing, her dressing, serving at table. She had chamberers who would deal with cleaning her chambers and the beds and all the other sorts of tasks. And then there were maids of honour that were unmarried up to 16 years of age and they attended her in public or in private to entertain her with singing, dancing or reading. And like the men, obeyed the household regulations were given duties. Now, when we're when we are going to shift our focus a little bit actually now to <coughs> mealtime, because there we actually got a lot of questions from our listeners this go around about the, the dinner table. <coughs> Or, I mean, I guess it could be a breakfast or a lunch, you know, whatever meal. Just yeah. sitting around the table, there are a lot of rules. So one of the things that, that our listeners were wondering was who sits at what table and where? Mm. 
is there are there rules to who gets to sit beside whom oh oh yes the whole of tudor society is governed by rules um dinner was usually about midday but if there were a lot of people lodged especially at court it would be arranged in sittings so a first sitting might be earlier once uh, the steward was alerted that the food was ready to be served and um, this would be you know, whatever dining chamber was being used, whether a great hall or just a very large room, uh, they would set up trestle tables and benches to sit at the tables. And they'd be covered with linen tablecloths. I mean, people often are surprised, but yes, tablecloths and napkins were de rigueur, you should say. Uh, Usually the long tables run down each side of the room and then a table will be put on the day, I can never remember how it's pronounced, die on the on the platform. Um, the high table, in fact, that's where it really sort of comes from. And that would be above the other tables and also always be furthest from the entrance. Marshals then kept an eye on who entered the room so that only those entitled to eat in the hall were allowed in. And they were told where they would sit so that the whole thing of precedence and rank and title position was totally known by the marshals and they would place the people where they needed to go. Uh, Then the people called sewers or servers would serve at the tables and the marshals would tell them which dishes would go to whom and the amount of dishes would vary according to rank. There were two main courses to each sitting and it comprised a variety of dishes so that people could choose from um, quite quite a range and they were generally served uh, to four or six people at one time and these were called messes so that's where we get the term mess from and then they would take the food and serve it to their own plates Um, they were also allocated a drink allowance either beer or wine and that, that differed depending on the person's rank Diners sort of use their own knives and spoons, and they also use their fingers. So bowls of water, usually rose water with napkins, were always provided. And everyone ate in hall. Um, and, and, you know, it would designate this, whether it was a room that was a dining chamber or if there were more chambers used because there was more people. And unless they were invited... Uh, to the privy chamber to eat that is where everybody ate and this was to keep good order so the heads of departments will be keeping an eye on everyone and there were regulations similarly with regard to the ladies of the court and that also defined what board and provision they would be allowed and they were ranked as duchesses countesses baroness and knights wives and it sometimes depended on whether their husbands were at court Ladies of the Queen's household were allowed rooms and stabling and their own servants otherwise. Obviously, at times of festivals, there'd be a lot more pomp and ceremony, such as food being served by announcement of trumpets. Uh, they might be served dressed, uh, the servers might be dressed in costumes. Um, you know, so there were lots of differences as well. That was the main table etiquette. I just want you to hold on to put a pin right in that festival one, because I do have a question about that. But one more thing about the ladies. I know that we had said the women who attend to the queen were are divided into, you know, those that are married and those that are unmarried. Was there a similar ranking for the men? Did it matter if the men were married or not? Or is that only that only contributed to the title of the ladies? Well, that really the men's side of it, it didn't seem to matter too much whether they were married or unmarried. There wasn't the same defining um, in that sense. What were the different titles that they could hold? Oh, they would be obviously dukes, um, earls, marquises, barons, and then you get your gentry, uh, which would be the knights. And, and um, sometimes uh, the important landowners and then as far as when they would tend to the king, um, would they all be considered groomsmen? Uh, no, there were, there were different functions. So you would get grooms of the chamber, you get grooms of the privy stall, which is uh, literally attending um, the monarch um, in his very, very private <laughs> moments. 
and um, the 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 personal attendants would be the most early risers of the upper class servant, shall we say, because obviously you would get the kitchen staff in the lower ranks being quite early. Um, and then you would get the dressers, you would get a barber. Um, they, were, they had a lot more roles, really, than the women did. There weren't so many jobs for the women to do, although women did, in fact, act as laundresses um, and... Uh, things like that. Now, if you were noble or if you had money, it's fair to say then that even if you're not the king or queen, you might have servants in your home as well. So do you think that it was more prestigious to be a lower ranked um, servant at court to the king or queen or a very highly ranked servant to another rich person or another you know highly ranked person not that was not a king or queen if if you were ambitious your aim was to go as high as you could and and as high as you could was the royal court or to be of standing service in one of the um palaces that would belong to the royal family. Um, so in actual fact, you would rather be um, perhaps not an even very well-paid servant at court because that was where you got your prestige. That was where you got your opportunities to better yourself um, in whichever way you wanted to go forward. Interesting. So it does it does make a big difference then yeah. to be at the royal court versus you know, a highly ranked servant, I guess, in someone else's home. Well, it would seem so. Uh, But obviously, I I don't think when it comes to working, things have changed awfully much. It always, I think, depends on what your your personal aim is. Some people might like to be a really um, um, highly paid servant in in a lesser household because it suits them for whatever reason it does. And I think we're all the same in that way nowadays. Some people are more ambitious than others. Some people would rather have a comfortable job in a position of trust with people that they've perhaps grown up with. In that. That's a great point. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point. It's, it's definitely not altogether different. All right. Well, back. let's go back to the festivals and the celebrations that you had started to mention before, but then we got a little sidetracked. And so we're going to circle back to that now. What are some important things that some of these people in the in the Tudor socialite world would celebrate? And actually one of our one of our one of our listeners had written in asking if people had birthday parties. Is that something that they celebrated back then? Uh, not not exactly. They're, they're not celebrated in the way we do now. In fact, there's not much evidence to show birthdays were taken much notice of. Um, because some people, of course, were not totally aware of their dates of birth, and sometimes we only know them from a note in a Bible or a journal. Although there is a possibility Mary Queen of Scots held a ball on her 20th and 21st birthdays. It certainly upset Knox anyway. Um, But they were aware of their ages. On Maundy Thursday, Henry VIII washed the feet of poor men whose number equaled his age, and he gave them a red purse with a light number of pennies. The people knew the ages of their monarchs, because when Queen Elizabeth, Henry VII's wife, died in childbirth, it was on her birthday, her 37th birthday, and on her funeral progress, on the way to being buried, there were 37 maids dressed in white linen with white and green wreaths on their heads, and they they held a burning wax taper, and there was 37 for each year of Elizabeth's life. Uh, Saints' days and feast days were quite numerous. Uh, Many had specific traditions and foods that went with them. And it might surprise people to know that they had 60 holy days, or shall we say holidays, in a year. And the people were forbidden. Did you say 60? (laughs) 60, yes. Six zero. Um, Obviously, their life was harder than ours, so they probably needed them. Um, but on those days, people were forbidden to work or or even to play games or to travel because they were obliged to attend mass. 
or church, depending how we went through the Reformation. Uh, basic festivals, um, you could start with Candlemas, which was the 2nd of February, and was also called the Feast of the Purification of the Virgin Mary. And the popular name, Candlemas, presents the uh, the candlelit processions which they made on that day. Um, Easter, of course, always a biggie. That started with Shrove Tuesday, which was also called Fat Tuesday, because you had to eat cheeses, milk and bacon and anything else um, you needed to eat before it went off. And you had to eat it before sundown, because it started the 40-day fasting for Lent. Then, of course, Easter week began with Palm Sunday and leaves were brought into the church in memory of the procession into Jerusalem. Uh, I think there would be more like willow leaves and yew leaves because obviously we don't have palms. Uh, on Monday, Thursday, candles were extinguished to symbolise the coming darkness of the crucifixion on, fr on Good Friday. And of course, Easter Sunday was considered the most important holy day and all work stopped. Then you had um, Midsummer's Eve, that was the feast of St John the Baptist, and the popular activities were huge bonfires, they stayed up the whole night, which was also called a watch, they put parades on, military displays, there'd be food set out um, um, with fruits and vegetables and herbs. Michaelmas um, was a time in September to sow wheat and brew owls and start preparing for winter. All Souls Day, of 1st of November, that was the time for praying and thinking of those who died and masses were said to shorten their length of time in purgatory because uh, Roman Catholics at that time believed, well, I don't know if they still do actually, uh, believed everyone had to spend some time after death there. Martin Mass heralded the beginning of Advent, the four-week period before Christmas, and that was so you could do penance and fasting for three days a week, and you weren't allowed to eat certain foods such as meat, cheese and eggs. And then celebration with three Masses began on Christmas Day. Much, much like today, the 12 days of Christmas was a time of rest and joy, except for tending animals, that was the one thing you were allowed. Spinning was banned, women were not allowed, and um, you, you rested up then until work on the land began again uh, around Plough Monday, which was the first Monday after Twelfth Night or 6th of January. Leaving the court for the moment, you'd see villages and towns, neighbours would visit each other, would enjoy a minced pie, would you believe? <laughs> well, that was made of dried fruits and spices such as mace, cloves and saffron and and funnily enough, chopped mutton. So these ingredients, there were supposed to be 13 to re represent Christ and his disciples. And the mutton was to remember the shepherds by. And they were often shaped like cribs. Uh, carols were popular. The earliest recorded book of carols is one by Winking de Word in 1521. And homes were decorated on Christmas Eve with greenery such as holly, ivy and laurel and anything else they wanted to put up. Um, <clears throat> now as for food, the traditional Christmas dinner for nobles and gentry used to be a swan or a goose and in the nobler households and royal circles they would also add venison, roasted peacock and wild boar. I think we've all heard about the boar's head served on a, on a platter um, turkeys came to England in 1523 and they became really popular and a Tudor Christmas pie was developed especially in royal circles because I mean it was a, a really expensive dish we're talking turkey stuffed with goose stuffed with a chicken stuffed with partridge and then a pigeon all put in a pastry case which they called a coffin and it was served with small pies made to look like small cabbages um, in the court, up to 24 courses would be served, um, specifically on the three saints' days, which would be Christmas Day, New Year's Day and Twelfth, Twelfth Night. <coughs> Leftover food was given to the poor. On Twelfth Night, there was a fruit cake, which would house a dried bean or a coin, 
and whoever found it could act as king or queen for the evening. But the other important part of the celebrations was New Year's Day, which is when gifts were exchanged. And uh, Henry had a bill uh, recorded with all the gifts. In 1528, he gave Anne Boleyn two bracelets set with ten diamonds and eight pearls. In 1534, Anne gave Henry a diamond-encrusted fountain which had water flowing from the breasts of three naked nymphs into a bowl decorated with rubies and pearls. Some of the New Year's gifts received by Queen Elizabeth were remarkable. In 1572, she was uh, given a white rose with a spider with a lozenge diamond on its back and underneath a bee with two diamonds. And from Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, she got a gold bracelet with a clock in its clasp, which was decorated with rubies. And of course, sometimes they use gifts in other ways. For in 1580, Sir Philip Sidney angered the Queen and only got back into her favour by presenting her with a jewelled whip to show his subjection, and he was forgiven. It really sounds like my husband is slacking in the gift department. (laughs) I'm listening to all these things, and I'm like, this is crazy. Do do we know where any of those gifts are now? Uh, Some were recorded in um, Henry's inventory, and then they they did pass the jewels on, but a lot of them got melted down and reutilised. So some do and some don't. Oh, that is such a shame. It is. That's such a shame. Yeah. You can thank Cromwell, I'm afraid, Oliver Cromwell, for some of the stuff that got lost when it came to some of the royal jewellery. We can blame him for a few few things (laughs) (laughs) over the course of... Well, okay, so let's now, I guess, turn... To, I could listen to the gifts. And I think the holidays and the gifts is my favorite part of our conversation. But well, I we do have more questions here. <laughs> just, just let me say then that if anybody wants to go on to the London University British History site, which is british-history.ac.uk, you can look up some of these things and they have the lists um, of showing what presents were given and, and received. And it includes what, you know, when... Henry VIII refused Catherine of Aragon's present and, and sent it back. And um, it shows what he what he gave out to other people and what other people gave him. So he got presents of shirts with embroidery on the collars. Um, he got daggers. He got chess sets. You name it, he got it. It's quite interesting. In, ad- in addition, it really is. And in addition to being obviously expensive and worth a lot and lavish and whatever they all sound so clever yes like these these gifts are not you know things that you would see every day it's not just you know a very expensive bracelet that has a lot of jewels on it i mean they all kind of mean something or depict a story it's it's yes. it's very interesting and and sometimes of course they made the things so they would write books and have them decorated um Catherine of Aragon was well known for making his shirts and she would make special embroidery on them and they would then be gifts. People made him caps. There was there were so many things and it's really well worth having a look up. It really is. So we'll we'll give you a chance actually at the end. We'll we'll talk about that website again just so everybody can take a look at it. Um, but for now, let's talk about their clothing. Uh, what was the difference in what someone uh, what a Tudor socialite might wear as compared to somebody who didn't have that kind of money that well that they had all through the various reigns um all through uh, the ages even from the sort of Plantagenet times and Tudor times and the Stuart times um there were what were called sumptuary laws or acts of apparel and it meant people differing ranks were told what colors and materials they could wear and how they should dress Sometimes ignored and sometimes they got arrested. Um, in general, it, it's a hard one to kind of call at times because it, it crept in amongst the uh, tears of society. But in general, um, at the time we're talking, only the monarch and his immediate family could wear cloth of gold and purple. And he wore the richest cloth. I mean, he wore. And, and his family could wear the finest silk, the finest taffeta, satin and velvet. 
and he liked ostrich feathers to decorate his hats and caps. Courtiers were allowed velvet and they were allowed silk and linen and could wear a certain amount of decoration. The deeper the colour, the more expense um, people thought um, had been paid out for them because they were regarded as more expensive. Uh, the ladies wore damas, um, velvet and satins, and their own servants would wear liveries of whatever colours they chose, their mistress's colours, a lot of russet actually. And lower ranks dressed in practical wool with fewer ornaments. Um, the women in particular wore layers of clothing. There would be a white linen shift, or what we would call a chemise, next to the skin. Then a petticoat went over, which is often called scarlet because that's the colour it was. They put a sleeveless kirtle over that with a stiffened bodice. And then there'd be an outer gown and a stomacher, which I think you can realise is the little thing they wore around. There were woollen stockings, which must have been absolutely hell on earth to wear. And obviously would have a girdle belt so that they could put um, a little rosary to it or a little book or whatever um, bit of jewellery. And, uh, of course, they had to wear a headdress, um, whether it was just a, a linen cap for the lower orders or a more decorative one by more um, the people up the, the higher ranks with the social classes. I, I actually think it's really hard to describe um, the clothes. Uh, when I was describing them in the Tudor Socialite, I did really rely a lot uh, on what I found in the journals and sometimes it was very frustrating because they were written by men or they were written by priests and they weren't always very descriptive so I found the best way of really seeing what was going on was um, looking at uh, portraits basically and you can find a lot of those now on the internet um, some really good portraits in the English National Portrait Gallery, um, that they can be accessed actually, so people can always look them up. And also, funnily enough, in the Netherlands Museum, a Rijks Museum. Um, so that's kind of where I would look it up in a way so that I could describe what I was um, writing about. And the other thing I did, um, we have some local museums around here and I went to one and um, I wanted to know what cloth of gold was like. I mean, after all, it's not a material we're really used to, is it? And I was very lucky. Um, went to uh, a, um, a house where Catherine Parr um, was um, mistress of at Gainsborough. And they have a little display there with uh, clothes that have been um, made as copies of what Henry VIII and Catherine Howard wore. And I have to say that cloth of gold is quite heavy. And it made me understand how they could walk with the long skirts because they could literally um, put it with a weight and it would just stay there, <laughs> which enabled them to walk quite easily. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but I, I was amazed. I always thought it was a softer material and, and it isn't. It's actually quite a hard material. But then nothing would... sounds comfortable. Nothing sounds, I mean, whether you were poor and you were just wearing, you know, a wool gown or something, all the way up to wearing the cloth of gold. Nothing sounds, you know, as comfortable as they, they didn't have loungewear. <laughs> they didn't have the luxury of just putting on, you know, whatever, just to hang out in, right? Because <laughs> what you wore had to reflect who you who you are. Um, not just that either. The clothes weren't easily cleaned. So you would wear sure, them. Right. The reason they would wear the linen shifts were those were the things that would easily be changed, but your overgown would probably be worn a few times. And that's why they would be they would be hang they would hang them up. Um, I suppose the way people still do with their clothes if they can't exactly dry, well, they kind of had a dry cleaning method, you could say. 
Right. How many linen shifts would, would one own if you were a Tudor socialite? Um, well, they would own as many as they needed. Um, if you were lower down, you'd probably only have the one. So would they, do you think that they would have, because obviously I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, the Queens and, and the, uh, upper, the upper kind of <laughs> circles as having closets filled of, filled with the overdresses, but even their, you know, would they have well, they actually tons of the linen shifts as well, or is that just something they have a, a couple and interchange them, wash them, and they they would have enough linen and they would be washed. Um, they, that's why they would have the laundresses. The interesting thing about women's clothing and and I suppose the men's clothing, but I've not really looked as much at them to be fair, um, is the fact that the everything was sort of add-ons. You had sleeves that you would lace onto the dress. Um, if you if you think about it, it was all made up of parts, which made life easier for cleaning and um, and making yourself look different every time you wore something. Oh yeah, you can mix and match the pieces so, yeah, they were, of your outfit. Everything was right. mixed and matched, actually. Yes, so it's quite interesting. Oh, interesting. And one last question about the the headpieces. I know you said there wasn't much, and thanks to the guys who who kept the records, there wasn't a lot of detail. Um, but what were what were the rules about what you had to wear on your head, or how much hair had to be covered, or what were, what were the rules about about headpieces? I have to be honest, I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't know is always a good answer. That's totally acceptable. <laughs> uh, it's not something I, I, I kind of just noted that people would, you know, the women would. Married women, obviously, had to keep their hair covered. Um, but I have to be honest, no, it was not something I, I kind of explored too much. I was too busy uh, trying to work out the other things, I think. Um, obviously, uh, the the maids... They didn't have to cover their heads, but I actually, do you know, you've made me wonder now. I'm going to have to look it up and find out. That's fine. We always love a cliffhanger. (laughs) We'll talk about that next time, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Now, one of our final questions from, from our listeners was about what here in America, we call it vacation. I guess you guys call it a holiday, but at the, at the time, they mentioned it being being referred to as summer progress or things like that. Where did they where did the Tudor socialite go when they wanted to get away? And how how much time were they given? And even then, did they mingle with commoners when they went away because they left court or tell us about what that kind of looked like for them. Right. Well, the summer progress was a mix of things, really. Um, being a socialite, you wanted to stay with the court, so you really wanted to be well in so that the king would say, oh, yeah, yeah, you can come along. Um, <laughs> sometimes um, more before Henry VII's time, they were used to dispense justice as a way of you know holding local courts. Um, but the, the progress, as we kind of know it in Tudor times, started really with Henry VII. Um, when when he beat Richard III at Bosworth, he, he made a progress in 1486, and this was to show himself to the people so they knew who he was. Um, of course, the northern counties were a bit problematical at the time for him because they were rather for Richard, not him. And so he went on a progress to gain their homage um, and to gauge loyalty. Um <clears throat> And then it sort of became something that um, he would do. They would go and have some leisure time. So he would like go to Kenilworth and he built tennis courts there. So he was very keen on tennis. Uh, by Henry VIII's time, it is more like a holiday because he indulged with a few courtiers uh, in hawking and hunting Um and, and, you know, he just wanted to be with his closer friends. Um, and the progresses were also, so they would be seen by commoners and, and people who lived outside of the court. They wanted to make their presence known. And also the privy expense accounts, they've got multiple entries of gifts that are given to them 
by common people and the rewards they got for it. Uh, strawberries were brought to Anne Boleyn on one of the rides out with Henry. Uh, he got cheeses and salad stuff. Um, his father on a progress gives two shillings to a woman that sings with a fiddle. Uh, he does four shillings to a May game that he sees. And progresses were also discreet ways of checking out the towns, the ports, the fortresses, the houses of nobles. And the other part of the progress was to give the standing servants that were left behind a chance to air and clean the lodgings and the toilets and, uh, you know, all the rooms. And then, of course, out of all the monarchs, <coughs> um, Queen Elizabeth I was uh, very much a people's princess. And I would say out of them all, she was the ruler with the most common touch. When she attended her first parliament, the populace shouted for God save and maintain thee. And she, she stopped and smiled at them and gave them thanks and they loved it. And if they knew which way she was coming back from her progress, they would wait hours to see her, to show their affection. And um, an example of a visit she makes to a, a town come port, she visits Sandwich. And the whole town turn out and they put on an entertainment for her. And on the first day, it's uh, men displaying martial skills. Um, the, the second day, their wives throw her a banquet and they put 160 dishes on a table, 28 foot long. And she sampled them and, and you know made comments on them and asked for some to be saved for her so she could have them later at her lodgings. And the day she actually leaves, she watches the children give a display of spinning skills. So she did use her progresses to communicate with people at all levels of society. And she would have dinner in one place and supper in another, and not necessarily in a big house. And she used them to evaluate what was happening in local economies. And then, of course, displays of fighting and sword play, using gun powder and cannon in mock battles was a, a very useful and covert way of ensuring local people were trained in martial skills. Rather useful when she was being threatened with an armada coming her way. Well, I think that that really covers a lot about the Tudor socialites at this point. Um, and anything else that our listeners would like to hear about or have any more questions about, I think that you have a book that we can we can tell them about to get the rest of it, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I was very... Um... I was very lucky with this. I'd actually originally submitted a book to Amberley on Anne Boleyn, but it didn't fit their list. But I told the editor that I was toying with an idea of a book of uh, ceremonies and, and events, a sort of Tudor hello or something like that. And it was because my friends, I've, I've got a journalistic background, and my various friends would say, oh, we'd love to read proper history, but we don't want to read all the, the theories, and we just want to... We don't want the conclusions. We don't want theories. We just want ceremonies and pageants and dresses and jewels and scandal. Um, the fun stuff, right? That's the fun stuff. <laughs> so I, I told uh, the editor that I managed to meet up with, uh, and uh, we toed and froed, and we came up with the Tudor Socialite, which was actually their title. But as soon as they gave that to me, I loved it, and it helped me clarify what I needed to do. Uh, which was, of course, writing diary entries as if I was in the royal court. Uh, so uh, I wrote many of the entries like news stories or press releases, and that enabled me to give back stories if I couldn't fit them into the timing. Uh, so I, I used it as if it was happening in real time, but could also reveal what the backstory might be. So, yes, it was a, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and that's such a helpful way for for some people who, you know, want to hear the history, just like you said your friends were saying, who want to hear the history, but don't necessarily want to wade through some of the other pieces. And that this is a really great way yeah. to read through it. And, and that was the other thing that um, the editor and I worked out that we also wanted to make sure it was real history. It was um, a narrative that told people what happened as it happened 
without them feeling um, they were wading through a lot of stuff. Uh, I know one of the reviewers who read the book didn't quite get that. He, he felt it was quite weird that it was done in the present tense. But I tried to make it so that I only ever knew what was going on at that time. No future. Well, we're just going to ignore him. That's for sure. <laughs> so there was no forward thinking whatsoever. It was all, okay, I'm on this date now. What do I know behind that date? Uh, well, that's a very clever idea that you had. And thank you for doing that for the readers. Thank you for doing that for your friends. And I'm sure that you're quite proud of yourself to have to have done that. So where can we find the Tudor Socialite? Uh, it's in, uh, well, you can order it from Amberley, of course. Uh, and it's in every, every bookshop, as far as I'm aware. Uh, so um, if, you, if you Google it, it just comes up, I'm told, by my friends. I was too scared to look at first. <laughs> Well, I have certainly Googled it myself. And uh, yes, you can find it for sure. (laughs) Very easily. Um, In fact, when they first gave me the the book, you know, you get the advanced book before it comes out. I was scared to look in case I opened it and found some great mistake that I made. Uh, oh my gosh! I'm sure there there feels I'm sure there it feels like a lot of pressure for you to to finally put it out and let everyone get it in their hands. But it's a great mm-hmm. book. It's a great topic, and I think that everyone is going to love it. Oh, that's so. Thank you. Well, that's lovely. thank you again to our. Of course, uh, thank you again so much to our guest today, Jan Marie Knight, um, and to our listeners who wrote in with questions. We always couldn't do it without you. And of course, to everyone listening to this week's episode, as always, we appreciate your support and hope you'll tune in again next time as we continue to ask the experts the pressing questions you want answered. And if you love the Tudors Dynasty podcast and want to show even more support, please consider becoming a patron where you'll not only receive the great content we offer now, but extra insider research, sorry, research, information, prizes, and other exciting opportunities only offered by subscribing. Until next time, thanks for listening. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.